Well, as Pastor Nate shared, very exciting morning today. We're going to begin our study through the book of Hebrews. So if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to begin there starting, uh, of course, at just the first few verses of the chapter. And um, if you don't mind, I didn't do this uh, first service, but it was more just because I forgot than anything. I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to say I'm going to do this throughout the... I, I, I charted it out. Perhaps we're going to be in the book of Hebrews maybe anywhere from 25 to 30 weeks. I can't say for sure how many, but somewhere around there. And in that half year, I don't know that we're going to do this, what I'm going to ask you to do right now every Sunday. But if you could, just for at least for this morning, would you please stand as we read the text together this morning, just out of reverence for God's word. And I think it's just sort of a symbolic thing, but I really want to emphasize the point that, you know, in in just a few minutes, I'm going to spend 30, 35 minutes talking about that text. I'm very happy for the opportunity to do that. But honestly, what the text itself says is more important. I don't ask you to stand for what I have to say about the text, but for the Bible itself, in reverence, I think this is a beautiful thing for us to do. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Father, this is your word. Would you please bless it to our understanding and our building up together this morning in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. I love how this majestic letter to the Hebrews begins. I love just the first verse, and I'll read it to you again. The first verse and a half, I'll start at verse 1 and end in the middle of verse 2, where we read, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. To me, there's something wonderful about the book of Hebrews and how simply it begins just with one three-letter word, God. There's no attempt to explain God. There's no attempt to uh, prove the existence of God. For the writer of the Hebrews, this is given. And he trusts that it's a given with you, that you know that by creation and by conscience, that there is a God in heaven who rules over the affairs of men. Now, if we wanted to argue about the existence of God, we could do that. As a matter of fact, it is a good and an interesting argument. We could do it. I mean, I remember when I was a teacher at a Bible college and I would teach lectures or classes on this. I had one lecture, 20 evidences for the existence of God. And we would go through the different philosophical arguments and the different practical arguments. We would talk about the argument from change. We would talk about the argument from efficient causality. We talk about the argument from time and contingency, the argument from design, the argument from consciousness, the ontological argument and the argument from conscience and on and on and on. You get the idea. 
That would be a good thing to do. Maybe some other Sunday morning we'll spend talking about that. But listen, the letter of the Hebrews doesn't really deal with that. The letter of the Hebrews just takes it as an assumption. God, here he is. Deal with it. I'm not even going to try to explain all who he is or why he exists. But no, we can have confidence with the writer of the Hebrews that there is a God in heaven. And we can know this, first of all, from rational argument, just as I said before. You could talk about 20 or more rational, philosophical, well-thought-out, well-founded reasons why we can be confident that there is, in fact, a God in heaven. But you know what? For us, maybe I should just say for me, even though I know it's true for most all of you in this room, for us, it's not only a matter of rational argument. Isn't it also a matter of personal experience? We know there's a God in heaven because we have personally interacted with that God. That in some intangible way that's difficult to describe, that goes beyond just philosophical argument or scientific analysis, we have met God and we have experienced him. Now, I don't want to say for a moment that we believe in God only because of our personal experience. Because somebody's personal experience might be deceptive at some point or or might be strange or bizarre or a sign of mental illness or something like that. So it's not only because of our personal experience by any means, yet our personal experience is important and meaningful to us. There's an old story I remember about a bank robber. It kind of illustrates the difficulty of people saying, well, listen, I don't believe there's any God because I've never experienced him. I've never found God. Well, again, the story about the bank robber. There he is on court, on trial, and they're bringing forth witnesses. And they bring forth six witnesses who saw him rob the bank. And then when it's his time to come up and testify, he's very confident about this. And he goes, Your Honor, that's no problem. You have six people who saw me rob the bank. Well, I have ten people who didn't see me rob it. And they think that somehow that's persuasive. So, friend, I'm just here to say, if you're here to tell me, well, I haven't experienced God, it's not persuasive to me who says, I have experienced God. I do know that he exists. And I do know that he connects with man. But this is what I want to get at here in verse one. The main point isn't really, in fact, that God exists. That's taken as a given. No, the real point is not that God exists, but that God speaks to humanity. Look at it again here in verse one. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past. You see, again, the main point is not so much that God exists. That's a given. It's that he speaks. And this revelation was given through the prophets and it was brought forth in various ways. Sometimes it was brought forth in parables. Sometimes it was brought forth in a historical story. Sometimes it was brought forth in a prophetic confrontation. Sometimes in a dramatic presentation. Sometimes in a psalm. Sometimes in a proverb. Sometimes something else altogether. And so God spoke to the prophets of old in a variety of ways. I mean, just think about it. He spoke to Moses by a burning bush. He spoke to Elijah by a still, small voice. He spoke to Isaiah by a heavenly vision. He spoke to Hosea through a family crisis. Matter of fact, he spoke to the prophet Amos through a basket of fruit. I mean, you can go on and on in the different ways that God has spoken by his prophets. But this is what I want you to understand. As the writer of the Hebrews looks back at the Old Testament and as God gave us, he said God spoke in times past by the prophets. In other words, this was God speaking. 
No matter what the human instrumentality instrument it was behind it, God was speaking. So when I read the prophet Isaiah, I understand that it's not just Isaiah, although God used his personality. It's God speaking through Isaiah. As I read Moses in the first five books of the Bible, I understand that it's not just Moses, it's God speaking. And there are some books of the Bible in the Old Testament that we don't even know who the author was. Uh, for example, First and Second Samuel. We don't know exactly who the author of First and Second Samuel was. Nevertheless, we understand it to be the word of God. You don't have to know the author of the specific book of the Bible for it to be the word of God. Which kind of brings us to an idea about the letter to the Hebrews. You see, the letter to the Hebrews is one of those unusual New Testament books that has no authorship attributed to it. He doesn't start out by saying, as so many of the letters in the New Testament, Paul so-and-so to so-and-so, or Peter so-and-so to so-and-so. No, 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 there's no name attributed in the letter to the Hebrews. And this drives commentators and scholars crazy. Because if it doesn't have a name, we feel like we have to put a name upon the book. So if we're going to put a name upon the book, well, who are we going to put upon it? Well, the majority opinion, both in the ancient world, this was the first ancient Christian commentator, believed that it was written by the apostle Paul. And many people believe it so since. They say Paul is the author of this book. And they notice sort of Pauline touches all throughout this particular book of the Bible. Well, let me say, I don't think anybody can say that with certainty, although a lot of people I know and love respect say that. Let me put it this way. As we go through this letter to the Hebrews, you're going to see me use the awkward phrase many times, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews. And why? Well, just because I'm trying to be precise and not saying Paul said or this guy said or that guy said. Even though a lot of preachers that I really know and love and respect have no problem saying Paul said, Paul said, Paul said. My own, my own, I don't know what should I say, my own hero? I don't know if he's a hero. The guy I really dig, Charles Spurgeon. If you read one of his sermons on the letter to the Hebrews, he's got no doubt who wrote it. He says, Paul wrote, Paul said, Paul this, Paul that. Well, I'm not going to agree with Charles Spurgeon on that, but I understand. There's been other people suggested who might have been the author of the book. Some people, and this is also an ancient suggestion, that it was Apollos, that man mentioned in uh, the book of Acts. Some people say it was Barnabas. Uh, some people say it was somebody else that we don't even know. There was even the suggestion made by a 19th century uh, um, German scholar that it was Priscilla who's mentioned a couple times in the book of Acts that she wrote it. Now, I'm going to have to humbly disagree with that scholar because later on in Hebrews chapter 11, I believe it's in verse 32, the writer of the Hebrews identifies himself to his readers and when he identifies himself, he uses masculine pronouns to identify himself. So that sort of eliminates the idea that it was a woman who wrote the book. But let me just say this. More important than the human instrument that God used to write this book is the theme of the book itself. And as the name of the letter itself suggests, it was written to Christians of a Hebrew or a Jewish background. 
You see, this was in the very early decades of Christianity when the followers of Jesus were more and more being seen as not just a branch of Judaism, but as a movement in their own right. And as that happened, more and more it became understood that if you were going to be a Christian, you were going to have to at least in some way leave behind some elements of Judaism of that day. And as people did that, they faced a lot of blowback from their family and their friends. But think of what it would be like to be a Jewish Christian in the first century. You would have people saying, why are you so into this Jesus thing? Why are you, don't you go to the temple and sacrifice anymore? Or why don't you honor God through some of the ancient rituals as we did before? And there would just be something in your heart that would want to say, listen, I love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I love what God has given me. I'm not leaving my Judaism. I'm fulfilling it. You can just imagine how many early Christians would say exactly that. Yet nevertheless, there would be a constant and a severe pressure to come back, come back, come away from Jesus, come back to rabbinic Judaism, come back, come back, come back. You know what these early Jewish Christians needed? They needed a voice that could speak to them passionately and eloquently and tell them, hold fast, stay grounded, stay anchored in the faith that has been delivered unto you. Don't stray from it. Don't leave it. And listen, I think this is a very relevant book for you and I today. There's all kinds of things in our present age that would shake us from our standing. If you think that somehow those ancient Christians needed to be anchored, but you and I don't need to, then I don't know the world you're living in. We need this. We need something secure to hold fast to. We need to learn how to hold fast to who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. And this is going to be all the predominant theme, how to hang in there, how to not let go, how to keep on going. You know, I, I, I'm aware of this when I speak to people. I'm aware that I look out and I don't know everybody's story, even if I know your story in general. Even if I'm good at, at picking up on the name and remembering that, and even if I know your story in general. You know, honestly, I have no idea what you lived through this last week or this last month. And for some of you, you may be on the verge of giving up. You may have walked into this auditorium, into this church this morning, and, and, and you may not have been able to articulate it, but what you're really asking is you're saying, Pastor, would you please give me some reason to keep on going with this? There are people who laugh at me because of my faith. There's some price I have to pay. There's some difficulty that I have to endure to believe what I believe and to want to walk the way I want to walk. Pastor, can you give me some reason to do this? And if we'll listen to it, all through the letter to the Hebrews, this theme is going to speak to us again and again and again. Because Hebrews is basically a letter encouraging discouraged Christians to continue on strong with Jesus in light of the complete superiority of who he is and what he's done for us. Now, in reference to that and in working that out, look at what he says in the first part of verse 2. He says that he has spoken to us by his son. He spoke to us by his son. It's not so much that Jesus brought a message from God, though he did. You could say this, that Jesus was the message from God. 
that he himself embodied the ultimate of God's revelation. God saying, I'm going to walk down the ladder from heaven and come down to humanity and relate to you man to man, person to person. And this revelation that we have from God in Jesus Christ is completely unique because it reflects not only the word of God. Friends, the Apostle Paul gives us the word of God. The prophet Isaiah gives us the word of God. King David gave us the word of God. But in Jesus, there's something unique. There's the word of God expressed through the very personality of God. And that's thrilling. That's why we want to point people to Jesus again and again and again. That's why when people need to know about Jesus, maybe they don't know anything about Jesus. Maybe they've never met him. The thing I love to do again and again and again is read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Start at any one of them. Start at John. Start at Matthew. Start at Mark. Start at Luke. It doesn't really matter. Read one of the Gospels. Or better yet, I'll say, let's read it together. And just talk about it. And let our minds be blown away by who Jesus is and what he does in the lives of people who approach him. That's why it's so powerful to say that God speaks to us through the Son. And you could say in this sense that the book of Hebrews, for the most part, doesn't present Jesus speaking of himself. There's a sense in which in Hebrews, the Son of God does not speak about himself. Rather, God the Father speaks about the Son. And you know, when he speaks about the Son, as we're going to see in just a moment, he brags about the Son. Is there anything more natural than a father bragging about his Son? It's just perfect. It's just appropriate. And the father loves to exalt the son and loves to boast about him and loves to point men and women to put their faith in him. So shall we listen to some of this boasting? There's seven as seven aspects of the boasting about the son. And it's going to begin here at verse in the middle of verse two. And it's going to extend all the way through verse four. Let's just take a look at it now through the end of verse three. Ready? Middle of verse two. Whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, one of the ways we understand something about the majesty of Jesus Christ is to see how easily how powerfully, how beautifully the Bible piles one term upon another in such an extensive way describing Jesus. In other words, you can't describe Jesus, who he is and what he's done in just a few words. You need to pile phrase upon phrase upon phrase. And even this beautiful sevenfold description doesn't exhaust it. If you were to talk about you, or maybe I should just say, maybe you should talk about me, you could catch me up in just a few words. I mean, it's really not all that complicated. You know, uh, not too tall, thinning hair, could lose a few pounds, and loves to talk to people about the Bible. Loves his family. You know, I mean, okay, there's not much more after that. It's not too hard to sum me up in a few words, but Jesus, you can't do that with Jesus. You have to pile description upon description. And that's what he does. Look at it. First of all, there in the beginning of verse two, he calls him the heir of all things. The idea there is that Jesus is the heir. It all belongs to him. He's inherited everything. It all belongs to him. Isn't that a beautiful thought? It's a beautiful thought. 
that Jesus is heir of all things, even the things that don't know yet that they belong to him. I imagine this morning that there's at least a few here. You're not a Christian yet. You haven't given your life in surrender and faith to Jesus Christ. If that's the case with you, I'm delighted that you're here. I really am glad that you're here. And I don't mean to make you uncomfortable or put you on the spot, but this is just who you are. You, you just say, whatever this Christian thing is, I haven't dived in yet. Maybe I put a toe in the water. You know, you probably wouldn't be here this morning if you hadn't put a toe in the water. But say, I haven't dived in. I haven't really given my faith, my trust. Let me tell you something. You still belong to Jesus. Now, you don't belong to him in every way that you should, but you, he still has a claim over you. Jesus Christ can look down on heaven and say, I made that person. They belong to me. Jesus Christ can look down in heaven and say, I died on the cross to demonstrate my love and to provide forgiveness for that person. They belong to me. You just got to realize he's got a claim on your life, whether you recognize it or not. Now, you're going to benefit so much if you do recognize that claim he has on your life and submit to it. But the claim is there whether you submit to it or not. So he is the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. Secondly, it says there, continuing on in verse 2, he made the worlds. This shows us Jesus, the creator. Look around at everything. He made it. Now, I know that there's disagreement among Christians and among scholars and debates in the world and in the church about the method of that creation. And I'm not going to get into any of that right now. I think it's fascinating. I think it's a worthy discussion. But right now, let's just say we can agree on this as an absolute non-negotiable. He is the creator. He created everything. And it's essential for us. It didn't happen by chance. It didn't happen by accident. No, this is a deliberate creation of a wise and all-powerful God. And because he created everything, you owe him. Isn't that a crazy thought? I think about it. Think about the people who walk the streets of Santa Barbara. And I'm not just talking about a solstice weekend. Think about the people who walk the streets of Santa Barbara. What percentage of them walk around with a vital understanding that it's somewhere in their mind God created me and I owe him. That's uh, awareness seems to be almost completely absent, but it's true. Why? Because he's created all things. But that's not all. Continue on. Now we're at the beginning at verse three. He says that the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. This shows us something of Jesus, the revealer. Not only is he the heir, not only is he the, the creator, he's the revealer. In other words, he reveals what God in heaven is like to us. It's an interesting phrasing that's used in the original language. The original language suggests the idea of beams radiating, like beams of light radiating from a light source. Let me put it this way. You, and I hate to speak on science, things like this, because I really don't know, understand much science. And I hope I'm not messing this up. But I think we can say that there is a sense in which we have never seen the sun. All we can see are the beams of light that radiate from the sun. Now, that's what we see. And since those beams radiate from a source, oh, there's the sun. We see it. But actually, we're not seeing the planet itself. We're not seeing that star itself that makes up its sun, our sun. No, we're just seeing the beams of light that radiate from it. 
in an analogous way, we have never seen God the Father. Then what do we know what he's like? Because Jesus is like the radiance of who God is. He beams out the God the Father unto us, and the invisible God that no one has seen enthroned in heaven is now understood by us because we see who he is. Matter of fact, he uses another phrase to emphasize that thought. He is the express image of his person. That has the idea of like a stamped image right there. He is the exact image of who Jesus is. Isn't that excuse me, of who the Father is? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Now, again, I think this is very, very instructive for us. And it helps clear up a problem that a lot of people have. You know, people like to ask me Bible questions, and I'm happy to answer people's Bible questions, at least as much as I can. And one of the questions that people often come is they are disturbed at this idea that in their mind, there seems to be this mean old God in the Old Testament who just likes killing people and smashing things. And then... In the New Testament, suddenly God gets nice in the person of Jesus. Well, listen, usually they're misunderstanding both things. First of all, they're not seeing the grace and mercy of God as he's revealed in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament God revealed to us in the Bible is full of grace and mercy. Oh, there's judgment there. I don't mean to deny it. But there's a lot of grace and mercy there, too. And you know what else they're not seeing? They're not looking at Jesus and seeing how filled with judgment he is at times. They have this weird conception of Jesus, like the hippie Jesus. Do you know what I mean by that? There's Jesus, you know, the daisy wreath in his hair. And he's walking barefoot through the fields and just putting flowers in the hairs of children. That's Jesus, okay? Now, they don't understand Jesus right there either, do they? But when you take the, what the Bible really says, you understand, no, Jesus is a accurate and powerful and beautiful description of what God was revealed to be in the Old Testament. He is, as the words of our text say, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. And then it goes on again, verse 3, upholding all things by the word of his power. This has the idea of Jesus, the sustainer. He sustains all things. He keeps them together. This is a theme we're going to come back to several times through the letter to the Hebrews. But how about just this? I'll just mention it right now. Maybe you'll touch somebody's heart. How about this? If Jesus is the sustainer, he can sustain you right now. Oh, no, you can uphold the world, Jesus, but not my life. I don't think it works like that. I think the one who upholds all creation can hold you up as well. And then continuing on, verse 3, he says, He had by himself purged our sins. This is Jesus, the Redeemer, the one who paid the penalty for our sins in the great work that he did on the cross. He offered up a sacrifice that perfectly pleased God the Father and was the greatest demonstration of love and sacrifice that the world has ever seen. And he bore our sins within himself. He was the perfect redeemer. And then number six in verse three, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This shows us Jesus, the ruler. There he is enthroned in heaven, seated upon a throne. I like one of the phrases that we're going to see a little bit later in the book of Hebrews. It talks about all things being under his feet. There he is enthroned. It's like the whole world is his footstool underneath him. And there's something I like about this. Again, you'll probably hear me repeat this a few times. Is this beautiful idea that, listen, even if it's over my head, it's still under his feet. 
And Jesus, I can have rest in that. You are enthroned. You are the ruler. Now, those six things, which I think taken collectively, are all pretty powerful. You have Jesus, the heir, Jesus, the creator, Jesus, the revealer, Jesus, the sustainer, Jesus, the redeemer, Jesus, the ruler. But now we come to number seven in verse four, where it says, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This is Jesus supreme. Jesus over everything. And this way that he exalts Jesus of being up and above every single thing means that he's up and above every single thing in our world or in our life. Now, look, I I want you to notice, and we're going to talk about this more next week. This verse four is really just an introduction in what follows. And what follows is a beautiful and an important discussion about how Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, I understand this may not be a question that you're vitally asking. I I doubt if anybody pulled up their car in the parking lot, got out of the car, and as you were walking into church, you say, I really hope the pastor clears that thing up for me, whether or not Jesus is greater than the angels. I really don't know. I I feel pretty confident that that's not the question that you're asking. But you should know that for these first century Christians, it was a vital question. Well, I'll talk more about that next week, and I'm excited to, because it really gets us into this biblical idea of what are angels and what's their purpose and what's that all about. That's for next week. But look, right now, what I want you to understand is that even though we understand that this shows us Jesus supreme, having become so much better than the angels, really, you could take the word angels out and just put in a blank. Jesus has become so much better than blank, whatever, whatever it might be in your life. Your success, your failure, your self-image, your family, what's going good, what's going bad, uh, all the things that you trust in. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you, we're not just talking about Jesus being better than angels. He's better than everything. He's supreme. He's high and exalted. And if we don't have that perspective right in our mind, it makes it so much more difficult for us to hold on in the difficult time. You see, this is what I want you to understand, too, is the reason for recognizing this incredible supremacy of Jesus. It's not to condemn you for not seeing that Jesus is better. I'm not trying to shake a finger in your face. Now, 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 you're not seeing Jesus better. Look at how bad that is. No, no, listen, this is the spirit in which I want you to understand it this morning. It's simply this. The fact that Jesus is supreme and exalted over all is true no matter what stage you are in your Christian life. I look out upon you this morning and I see, I see faces that are probably pretty new in their relationship with Jesus Christ. But I see other faces. You've walked with the Lord for a long time. I could ask for a show of hands, but I'm not going to. But just imagine what it would be like in this room. You know, how many have walked with the Lord for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? There's some of you who've walked with the Lord for 50 or 60 or maybe even more years. You've been with Jesus a long time. Listen, I've got a word for you. There's still things about Jesus you have not yet discovered. He still, in some ways, is unto you an undiscovered country. Because when you've walked with the Lord for that long, sometimes you get sort of this jaded cynicism. Yeah, I've heard it all before. You're thinking, man, this is about the 15th sermon I've heard on Hebrews chapter 1. Well, I'm sure it is. And it might not even be the best one that you've heard on Hebrews chapter 1. But listen, this is what you need to know. There is more to who Jesus is and what he's done for you than you've ever yet realized. And you need to latch on to it with all of your heart and with all of your strength. You need to ask God, shake me up from this. 
Shake me up from this complacency that said to me, I've heard it all before. It's just another message. No, no. Jesus still is in many ways like an undiscovered country. And there's so much more about Jesus for you to discover. And so he's better. He's superior. We'll talk more about it. We'll talk more about it. We've seen it this morning, how Jesus is the heir. He's the creator. He's the revealer. He's the sustainer. He's the redeemer. He's the ruler, how he's supreme overall. But let me just wrap it up with this final thought. We can summarize all that we've seen just really in just a couple points. First of all, we see God speaks. He is not silent but he's spoken to man. Secondly, we see that he speaks with finality and with authority through Jesus Christ and the New Testament. And then thirdly, we see that the Jesus who speaks to us is amazing and he's above everything. Friends, can I just ask you to do this in conclusion? Would you put your eyes on Jesus? Would you just look and say, well, Pastor... I was hoping for something more practical this morning. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm having a problem in my marriage. I was hoping you'd tell me how to be a better husband in my marriage. Can I tell you how to be a better husband right now? Put your eyes on Jesus. No, but you don't understand. My business is failing. And I need to well, listen. Last guy in the world you want to ask for financial advice is me. But I can give you something very practical to do in the midst of your troubled business. Would you put your eyes on Jesus? You see, friends, it doesn't matter what you're going through, whether it's a good season or a bad season for you right here, right now. This is the most supremely practical and beautiful and useful thing you can do at this moment. Is to put your eyes on the greatness and the glory of who Jesus is and listen to his voice. If we've learned anything, it's this God speaks. But do we listen? Will you listen? And have his word be the meeting place where you meet him and see your life beautifully touched and transformed. Father, that's my prayer. It's my prayer for me. I pray, Lord, that you would just lead me deeper into who Jesus is and what he's done for me. That I would regard him as he truly is, this great, supreme, undiscovered country in my life. I want to explore it, Lord. I want to see more and more of who Jesus is and what he's done. But Father, secondly, I I just pray for everybody here. I pray that you'd show us Jesus as he really is. I pray that you'd show us Jesus, not as we have imagined him to be, but as he is in truth. And I pray that when the real self comes into contact with the real Jesus, that there be real transformation and blessing in the life. Do this, Lord, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.